What's up, guys? Ryan Horn here, and welcome to the Extraordinary Man Podcast. This is the one and only podcast specifically designed to help married businessmen create more profit and purpose in their business without sacrificing their family, health, or marriage in the process. Each week, I interview some of the world's most extraordinary men, including seven- and eight-figure entrepreneurs, elite athletes, best-selling authors, and world-class speakers. Mitchell R. Tucker is an entrepreneur, published author of Mentally Tough in a Weak Society, served as a police officer, and enjoys spreading his message through public speaking. He is passionate about teaching the art of mental resilience and helping push others out of their comfort zone and into new heights. Mitchell, welcome to the Extraordinary Man Podcast. It's great to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm fantastic. Blessed and highly favored. Thank you for having me. Amen. Yeah, I'm excited. Well, tell us a little bit more about your backstory to get started. Yeah. So, you know, growing up as a kid, I, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. My, both my parents owned businesses, but I wanted to be a cop. And uh, that's the direction I, I went. I, at 18 years old, I joined, joined the police academy. You can imagine um, I was ragged pretty hard being 18 years old in the police academy. I was the youngest one there. I was barely out of high school. Uh, by the time I graduated the academy, I was 19 and I became a deputy sheriff at 19 years old. I was one of the youngest in the agency. Continued to get ragged. I couldn't even buy my own bullets. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I enjoyed my time in law enforcement. Did about 12 years. I worked undercover narcotics. I worked, obviously, as a patrol fashion. I worked uh, as a robbery detective. Absolutely love, love law enforcement. Huge supporter of law enforcement. But around December 2017, I started looking for opportunities. And I'll tell you, it's pretty crazy how things happen, right? I wasn't looking for anything initially, but I I just come out from working undercover capacity. I'm back in a uniform, working a patrol fashion. And I get a call. This elderly lady calls into the sheriff's office and she says, I would love to have an officer come out to my house and show me how I can make it more secure because my husband's going out of town and I would feel safer if I knew you know, how I can make my house more secure. And to go from working narcotic and doing a bunch of really cool stuff to answering calls like that, as you can imagine, it was, it was I didn't enjoy it, right? So I'm, I'm heading to this call, probably not with the best attitude. And I show up, I do my job, I show her, hey, do this, do this, add lights here, you know, how to make it uh, more secure. And at the end of the at the end of the, my time there, which was only maybe 30 minutes, she said, wow, deputy, thank you so much. The peace of mind you just gave me was worth every bit of $500. And I was like, I was here for 30 minutes, right? 500 bucks for 30 minutes. And that right there, that single moment started my entrepreneurial journey. And that one call completely changed my life. So um, I don't even know the lady's name, but if I could find her, I'd shake her hand and she'd be on my Christmas card list for sure. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy how how things like that can completely change your life. So I started looking for opportunities and I created this alarm system and I was able to patent it several times. It uses what was actually originally military technology. And we took the military technology, we kind of retrofitted it, turned it into a home security system, was able to patent it. And I started looking for investors. I found an investor and... Um, he said, Mitchell, I really love you. I love the product. You almost made me break my number one role. And I said, well, what's your number one role? He said, I can't invest in anyone who has no skin in the game. He said, you've been a cop 12 years. You've got a good career. Um, you make decent money. I give you all this money. You don't do what you should. I'm out all my money and you lost nothing. 
And uh, that hurt because this that wasn't like a real quick no. That was drug on for like a month of him saying maybe, maybe, and then finally a no. So I go home that night and pray about it. I lay up all night long thinking, how am I going to convince him that I'm serious? I get skin in the game, right? So I wake up that next day and I tell my wife, hey, I'm going to quit my job. <laughs> and uh, as you can imagine, she was like, you're going to what? But I'm blessed because... I have a very supportive wife and she said, you know, whatever you want, I trust you. You know, I know you'll provide. And um, we, I went in that very next day and I turned in my two week notice and thinking that I had two weeks left of pay. Right. And I didn't know it was a policy of the sheriff's office. They let you go same day. Um, yeah. So that same day they let me go and I show up home and my wife's like, what are you doing home so soon? <laughs> And so I was on the uh, like thrown in the rat race for real, as far as entrepreneurship goes. I had a, like 2000 bucks in my bank account. I'm married with two kids and a mortgage and you know life and trying to figure out how to make money. So fast forward a little bit, in order to make income, I created a security guard company. And the idea was it was going to you know keep income coming in until the alarm launched. Initially, that was my thought process. And I was working a lot of the security myself. And uh, now we have, we employ over 40, I think we're at 42, 43 uh, full-time security officers here in Central Florida. And it's turned out to be a very successful, a very big blessing in my life. And um, it's just funny how little things like that can completely and utterly change the direction of your life. And so what, what initially was created to bring in some income just until the alarm launched became my primary income. And uh, I'm actually still working on that project, but um, that's where mental resilience comes into because I'm six years on that alarm project. And I tell you what, I never in a million years thought it was going to play the way it played out. He, uh, my investor, great guy, nothing against him, but he, he hit it really big with a couple other projects and he, he walked from the project. Um, so it's, uh, it's definitely taken some more time and a lot more mental resilience than I ever imagined, but I'm, I'm blessed and I'm doing well. Intactsecurity.com is the, is the, is the name of my security business here in central Florida. That's awesome. Yeah. Entrepreneurship, I think a lot of people don't realize that it's most likely going to take you a lot longer than you think. It's going to be harder than you think. There's going to be more obstacles than you think. But that's awesome. Before we dive too deep into what you're up to nowadays, I'd love to hear uh, what would you say were some of the biggest lessons you learned from being in law enforcement for over 10 years? And by the way, thank you for serving. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. I uh, Sometimes I hardly felt like serving. You know, Sometimes I felt like I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. I I really, really did enjoy my time there. Um, lessons learned. Wow, there's so many incredible things. I'll tell you, I honestly, I felt honored to serve in law enforcement and I truly, truly felt it was a blessing. I, I put myself in positions um, to where I was able to make a difference and, and not every day, but, you know, in a handful of people's lives. And that's what it's all about. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm very, very thankful for the, um, the opportunity to have served. And when you come out of law enforcement, that was my biggest struggle coming out of law enforcement. And it was almost my identity because as an adult, I had done nothing. You know, I, I went to high school. Um, I did one semester of college and decided that wasn't for me. And I came back, joined the academy. So my entire experience was high school and then being a cop. And um so I really identified with that badge. And when I when I took the badge off, it was hard for me to go from that to civilian life and felt like I had worth. You know, I had to really find my worth in other things. And and 
and realize that I can make a difference. I don't have to have the badge to make a difference. But um, I've seen the very, very best in people in law enforcement, and I've seen the absolute worst in people. And um, one thing that I for sure learned is, you uh, you know, this, this saying is a thousand years old or older. You can't judge a book by its cover for sure. Yeah, I, I believe that for sure. So you talked about identity and that is really important. And I think a lot of men do struggle with that because we put it into whatever we're doing or our work. You hear professional athletes all the time. They struggle with that as well because their whole identity is wrapped up in them as a football player, basketball player or whatever. So how did you kind of get over that? And what would you say your identity is rooted in now? It took me a long time to get over that. It was nothing, it was nothing that happened very quickly. I can promise you that. And um you know, my identity first is in Christ, right? So that's that's the most important thing. I know we're on audio right now, but if you were to see my shirt, I got this shirt. I actually had this made and some people love it. Other people want to kill me for it, but it says pro-God, pro-family, pro-life, pro-America, pro-gun. And underneath it, it says offended question mark. And then it says peaceful savage. And and really, that's the way I identify with every aspect of that t-shirt. That That's my identity. And I was writing a book my, my father's passed a few years ago, and um, he's a huge impact on on who I am today. But I was writing a book, and towards the end of his life, he told, he kept saying, hey, did you finish that book? I want to read you. Finish that book. I never got around to it. He passed away, and it was like a slap in the face. Like, golly, I mean, it just wasted time. It was a book. I should have just wrote the freaking book, you know? And when he passed away, I wrote the entire book, the remaining of the entire book in like 72 hours. I sat down for like three days straight and I wrote the entire book and um, I had someone basically read over it real quick and I threw it out there. So I maybe rushed it a little bit to market, but it was it was for me, you know, for my own mental health at that point. And um, but it was a blessing because then people reached out to me. I've had three or four people reach out to me and say, hey, I really enjoyed your book. It really helped me out. It really it really inspired me to keep pushing on. The book is called Mentally Tough in a Weak Society. And um, there's sections on there, how to be mentally tough through illness and how to be mentally tough through financial hardship. And these are all aspects of things that I've been through or my father's been through that and, and techniques that he used or I used to help me. And I wanted to get that out to people. And when people responded and said, Mitchell, I really appreciate that. I, it helped me a lot. That's where I started to find my identity. Like I don't need the badge to make a difference. I can make a difference. And I can make a bigger impact in a way because as far as, you know, as a law enforcement officer, I was stuck in my jurisdiction, right? That's where I was making my difference. And that's very important. And I'm thankful that there are people doing that. But um, as an author and a content creator and a speaker and a patriot, I can make a difference outside of my community, even in my country and in my culture as a whole. For sure. Let's talk a little bit more about your book, Mentally Tough in a Weak Society. Why did you decide to write it in the first place? And what are some of the biggest takeaways people are going to get when they read it? So I'm actually working on a second book right now. Um, but Mentally Tough in a Weak Society is my the first book I launched. And the reason I wrote it was it was what I saw my dad go through. My dad was chronically ill. They gave him 70 years to live when my mom was pregnant with me. And he just passed a few passed away a couple of years ago. And I saw him go through, he had a, a disease called scleroderma and um, it just absolutely wrecks your body. And it's, it's, it's horrible thing to watch. And I saw him go through the most excruciating, painful things. And um, I, I went to a doctor with him one time and he was having a procedure done on his leg. And I was a younger kid 
and I could tell on his face that he was in pain, but he would never really express it or show it in front of me. And uh, he wasn't some tough macho guy, but he was he was always concerned about his family, right? And he was very mentally tough. So he could put things aside if it was for the betterment of his family. And I said, dad, does it hurt? And the doctor said, son, if you can imagine being shot in the leg and then me trying to dig out the bullet with my fingers, that's what your dad feels right now. And I'm, And he's just standing there. You know, he's just taking it. And uh, so he's a very tough guy. And then outside of that, fast forward, um, I'm uh, I'm visiting my dad in ICU. And this was multiple times throughout my dad's life. He was given life to life expectancies, like three months, six weeks, you know, and he always beat him. And we're laying in, he's laying in bed and he's almost bedridden at this point. I hadn't even seen him pick his head up or talk much at all. It's just me and him in the room at the time. And the doctor walks in and is like, Ken, we got bad news. The results didn't come out well. You need to get your things in order. We need to talk with your wife and stuff like that. And I see my dad put his hands on his on the bed and he leans up with every bit of energy and, and power that he can muster up. And he says, only God and myself is going to tell me when I'm ready to leave this earth. So don't ever say anything like that in front of me or my son again. And he fell back down on the bed. And now granted that doctor was just doing his job. I get that. But my that was my dad's mentality. And on the way out of the hospital, two weeks later, my dad's going out of the hospital, he's on two feet. The doctor pats him on the back and says, wow, can you sure went against all odds? Mm-hmm. And that's like the preference, the preface of the whole book is just being mentally tough, because I truly believe no matter what you want to accomplish in your life, you can do it as long as you're mentally resilient. You really can. You cannot fail until you quit. And if you don't quit, eventually you'll figure it out and you'll make it happen. Absolutely. Love that. Uh, Great backstory too of why you wrote the book and great example that your dad set for you. So let's talk a little bit about mental toughness. Like, How can people develop mental toughness? Yeah. And I talk about that a lot in the book. There's there's little, little things that we can do that are minute, really. They don't seem like they're that big of a deal, but over a period of time, they will increase your mental resilience. And I like to point out the little ones because you can go online and you can find all kinds of different things to increase mental resilience. But I like to point out a couple that people don't talk about too often that I feel are make a big difference. And one is working out without music. So I don't know if you, if you don't go to the gym, you need to go to the gym, right? That's step one. You got to get in the gym. And in my opinion, you got to go early. Um, if your schedule doesn't work and you have to go at night, it's okay. But I hate waking up early, but I still do it. Right. And I'm not one of these guys that's going to tell you you have to wake up at 5 a.m. and journal and take cold showers and stand on your head. Right. I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to that extent, but you have to do hard stuff every day. You have to. And eventually what you'll find is the hard stuff isn't as hard as it was. And then you think, well, maybe I'm just getting used to it. You're, you are, you're getting more mentally resilient to the idea of it. It still sucks. Right. You just don't realize it sucks anymore because you've gained mental resilience. So working out without music is is not something I always do because it still sucks. I I, I love putting on the music and going to the gym. Um, I know I think it's actually been scientifically proven. I, I was reading actually earlier today. It says it increases your endurance by fifteen percent when you listen to upbeat music or motivational content. Fifteen percent. So you take that music off. That was by Max Al Ed Milet. So if you take the music off or you take out the motivational uh, podcast or whatever you're listening to, you have to come up with that fifteen percent yourself. And um, I think that's really, really more powerful than people people give it credit. 
Yeah, that's a good one. I, I don't think I've heard that one before, but yeah, a lot of times it does come down to the little things and, and building habits like that. When you do hard things, obviously it's not fun in the moment, but on the other side of that, you're proud of yourself and you build that mental resilience and, and toughness and it gets easier and easier. But then you got to just keep kind of up in the game, right? And pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone. You use the term peaceful savage a lot. You already mentioned, I think on the podcast here, how did you come up with that? First of all, and second of all, what does it mean? I love this story, man. It's I truly believe Peaceful Savage was put in my head via God. Like I'm in, I'm sleeping, dead asleep. Three o'clock in the morning, I wake up, boom, Peaceful Savage on my brain. What? That is weird. So I grab my phone and I go to the notes and I put it in my notes, Peaceful Savage, just because I, I thought it was a kind of a cool, cool term, word, word play, and I didn't want to forget it. I go to sleep. I wake up the next day really a couple hours later and peaceful savage first thing that pops in my head I'm like man that's wild that, that's such a weird they don't go together right um that was the extent of it then it happens throughout the day throughout the week constantly i'm thinking peaceful savage peaceful savage well i'm, I'm going throughout my day my schedule the gym work everything else so it's there but i'm not doing anything with it finally i get to my office and i have some downtime so i jump on and i i go to google and I type in peaceful, definition of peaceful. The first one that pops up was dictionary.com. I read the definition of peaceful. Then I type in savage. I read the definition of savage. And they're still not really, I'm still not meshing. Like, why are these two words in my head? And um, I won't go into the whole backstory, how I got to the Bible verse of the meek shall inherit the earth. I'm sure you're familiar with that verse. Um, but I was doing some research and I... Um, ran into actually Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you follow Jordan Peterson, but he actually, I was watching a, listening to a podcast and he said something about the meek shall inherit the earth. And I, I can't remember how I tied it to peaceful savage to be completely honest, but I started digging into that verse and listening to what Jordan Peterson said and talking to my pastor, reading it. And, and I thought, wow, that's a lot like the peaceful savage, because when we talk about the meek shall inherit the earth, when you think about it with a Neanderthal thinking mind that I had initially was how's a meek person going to inherit the earth, right? A meek person tries to take my wallet and it ain't happening, right? I'm going to crush them. And <laughs> that's the first thing that pops in my head. But what the Bible's talking about is the meek person, like a warrior who is utterly savage in the craft of the sword. He can cut down anything in his path. I mean, this guy is a beast, but due to his meekness, he keeps his sword sheathed. And I was like, wow, how incredible is that? That is exactly peaceful, savage, like the ability to be an absolute savage, but you lucky I'm peaceful, right? And um, and that's kind of where the term peaceful savage came from and the meaning behind peaceful savage, being an absolute warrior at, at your craft, an absolute savage in your marriage, in your in your hobbies, in your in every aspect of your life, I believe you should approach it as a peaceful savage in order to get the most out of life. That's awesome. Love the backstory. And uh, definitely, I think most people do not think of what you said when they think of savage. They just immediately probably think of violence or something like that. And same with Meek. I remember a few years back when I really actually looked at what the definition is, because you're right, it's, I get kind of the, I used to get, I should say, kind of the same picture in my mind, like a, a meek person. Like, I don't want to be a meek person, right? right. Yeah. So uh, I love the explanation of that. And uh, peaceful savage. That's awesome. Love it. it. It's kind of almost like a police officer in a way, right? Like they're walking around with their 
they're gun, but they're peaceful. But if stuff goes down, I mean, they're, they're ready to step up and step up and handle it. Right. Yeah. And I've actually made that, um, that connection in the past is, you know, they have the absolute ability to pull that firearm and, and kill anyone in their path. But due to the peaceful aspect of them and due to, you know, their moral code, they leave that gun sheathed until evil pokes its head. And then they take care of business because they have the ability to do so. And you've got to have the ability, especially men. Like if you have a medical condition or something like that, that's one thing. But I feel like every man needs to be, they need to have the ability to be an absolute savage. I mean, if you, if you're married with children and you don't have the ability to be an absolute savage inside of you, then who's going to protect your family. Right. And that's a whole nother aspect of it, but yeah, that's a great connection. Yeah, for sure. And I, I totally agree with what you just said there. Before we move on, I'd love to know, do you have any, since we are talking about uh, being a police officer again, do you have any crazy stories from being a police officer? I'm sure you do from being one for over 10 years. Oh man, we could, I could talk about that forever. Um, you want, you want funny or, or, or intense? <laughs> I get whichever way you want to go. I'm, I'm open. Okay. So, um, Thanksgiving Day a couple years ago, I'll give you a kind of an intense one with a kind of an ironic ending. Thanksgiving Day in 2000, I guess 15 or so, maybe 16, I'm sitting in a patrol vehicle. I'm back at patrol. I'm back working in patrol fashion at this point, and I'm writing a report in my patrol vehicle from some calls I had earlier in the day. And are you familiar with those internet cafes? People go in and they can like gamble. Yep. Um, There's one of those like. I don't know, a few hundred yards from where I'm sitting in the Lowe's parking lot. And whenever there's a, a high profile thing taking place, a, a, um, a homicide or a, a robbery in progress or burglary in progress, something crazy, the radio goes beep, beep, beep before the dispatcher tells. But that way it gets everyone's attention. Like, hey, everyone listen up. So I'm sitting there typing my report and I hear the radio go off. Beep, beep, beep. So I stop. It's got my attention. I'm listening. And they say, um, signal 24 in progress armed with a rifle, basically armed robbery in progress. And they spat off the address. And I'm like, no, I'm like that. I look up and the address they're giving me is in front of me. Like, I mean, a couple hundred yards in front of me. And I'm like, there is no way I'm sitting right here. So I get on the radio and uh, I go 1097, which means on scene. And um, I pull up to this internet cafe. Now, this is like worst case scenario, right? It's got concrete block up to about... I think it's like three feet. And then from three feet to the, to the roof is glass and it's dark, dark tinted glass, like most of them. So you can't see in at all. And supposedly there's a guy inside with a rifle. So I obviously don't want to go strutting past the glass windows because I can't see in all I can think about is he's going to shoot me in the face as I'm walking past. Right. So I grab my AR 15 and I'm army crawling um, up against the concrete wall all the way around the side of this building. So I can get to the back of the building where, where the entrance was. So our army crawl all the way around this thing. The whole time I'm thinking, is my butt sticking up? Like, am I about to get shot? Like, is he, is he in there looking down at me about to shoot me in the back? You know, you just don't know. So I'm crawling as fast as I can with my, with my rifle. I get around to the back and the back doors just kick wide open. And, um, you, it must be where they stored stuff. Cause there was chairs and merchandise and all kinds of stuff back there. So I get on the radio and I let them know that I'm going, I'm clearing the building. I'm, I'm going inside. And, um, Dispatch tells me that my Sentinel 55, my backup, is going on scene now. So I look behind me and I see another patrol vehicle pulling in. So I hold up for a minute. He jumps out, runs up behind me, stacks up behind me. We're going to go in together. 
And I almost hate to tell the story because I feel like I'm talking crap about the guy, but the deputy was brand new. I mean, literally three days on the job, a week, less than a week on the job. So he didn't, he had that going against him. Right. So he stacks up on, puts his arm on my shoulder and he is shaking so bad that I can feel it in my legs. Like, I mean, he's just like freaking out. So I, I start to walk in, I turn around, I give him a little pep talk. I'm like, man, we got this. You got training. There's two of us. There's only one of him. You got body armor on. We're good to go. Right. Give him this little pep talk. And then we move in and it's not cutting it. I mean, he's like, <laughs> like I thought he was going to pass out or shoot me in the back. So I tell him, I said, look, I really need you to go to the back door Stay there in case the bad guy comes out. Don't let him get away because if he got out, it's probably done. Probably done killed me too, right? So, if he tries to come out that back door, don't let him get away. So he took that mission with with pride, and he he ran out there and stood by the back door. And I, I don't like to. I'm not trying to make myself sound like I'm some kind of BA guy, but um, I go in and I clear the building. I get down to one room, and uh, there's the only room left. So I announce and. Um, I hear the victim cry out to me. So she unlocks the door and opens it up, runs out and hugs me. The guy's not even in there. The guy, he, was not, he wasn't in the building. So she thought he was still inside because the door chimes when it opens and closes. It chimed when he came in, when he kicked it off the hinges, but it never chimed when he went out because the door wasn't on the hinges. So she was in there on the phone with 911 saying that he was still in there and the guy wasn't even in there. So it had an ironic ending because... You know, we as law enforcement officers, you could put in situations like that. I can't tell you how many times that I've prayed on my way to a call, like, God, protect me. God, give me strength. God, if it's my time, don't let it hurt. I mean, like, these are actually like prayers that I've said literally a trillion times in my head or even out loud. And, um, you know, when you, when an opportunity comes, when you swore an oath, you don't really have a choice, you know, and at least that's my opinion. We look at cases like Uvalde, Texas. It makes me sick to my stomach. I don't even, I don't even know what to say about that situation. But in my opinion, if you took an oath and you wear a badge, you don't have, all choices go out the window. There is none. Uh, you sort of protect and you have to do it. So, um, but I was blessed and, and grateful that it had the ending it did. And there was no one even inside the building. Yeah, for sure. What a great story. And in a way, it's kind of like uh, when you get a call like that, and even though the guy wasn't there, you didn't know that, obviously, you're clearing the, the building as if he is there. It's a, like an opportunity to test yourself and kind of see what you're made of. Yeah. And, and until you get put in that situation, you really don't know how you're going to respond. I mean, you uh, you don't. I remember the very first time I ever had a situation like that, I was still in the field training program. So I was riding uh, with another officer. I was being, you know, still going through the program and being taught how to be a cop basically. And um, I was only a couple weeks in and I got involved in a, in the shooting. I never had to fire my firearm, but then you start to think like, golly, what did I sign up for? You know, like my, I'm two weeks in and people are getting shot. This is crazy, but you really don't know how you'll respond until you put your, put yourself in that situation. And not, not just to go, not just with like violent situations, but in every situation, right. Sales or marriage or whatever, you really don't know until you put yourself in the situation. Um, so it's hard to talk from, uh, from a person's point of view, unless you've experienced it for sure. Absolutely. Totally agree with that. All right. Let's switch gears a little bit here. So I'm going to take you back to when you're 20 years old. So you were fairly new, uh, police officer at the time. If you could go back and speak to your 20 year old self, what three pieces of advice would you give yourself? As a law enforcement, if there's anyone inspiring to be a law enforcement officer, I would tell them that, Take every opportunity for every bit of training you can possibly get. There's so much training out there, and and a lot of cops don't take advantage of it. I um, 
I loved it. I ate law enforcement up my first few years, especially. And um, as much training as you can get, you can do training with the military or Department of Homeland Security or whatever the case may be. Take all the classes you can get your hands on, because not only will it help you further your career, but when you're put in a situation, crap hits the fan, you'll be able to perform a lot better when you're uh, sufficiently trained. Absolutely. Solid advice. Uh, What is your definition of an extraordinary man? My definition would be someone that is, you know, you don't have to have heard the term peaceful savage before, but someone that is a peaceful savage. So you believe something. I don't care what it is. You believe it. You might not believe, you might not agree with me. And that's okay if you're willing to stand up for it. I think that our world, you know, I, I, I encourage people, we have a peaceful savage oath. And I encourage people to take that oath because it's, it's nothing, it's nothing crazy. It's just basic morals. Right. But one of them is stand up for what you believe in. And I believe that if every single person took that oath and they meant it wholeheartedly and they could not go against it, in my opinion, an oath cuts out any other option. I mean, an oath and a promise is slightly different, right? Like no promises. I, I really, really, really try. An oath is I have no other option, right? If I give you my oath, I cut out everything else. I am bound to it. There is no other option. So if everyone decided to take the oath and they truly, truly full-heartedly meant it, our world would become a better place because you, you, our biggest issue right now is we, we're called the silent majority, right? At least I put myself in that category if they, they call us the silent majority. And that's the problem. Everybody is silent. No one's willing to stand up. No one has the guts to say anything. And uh, I know it's not always easy but it's not supposed to be easy. So my definition of an extraordinary man is someone who has morals and a standard that they live by and never, ever, ever deviates from it. Love it. That's a great definition. This has been awesome, Mitchell. Where can people go to connect with you and find out more about you? You can find me on Instagram or YouTube, Mitchell R. Tucker. So youtube.com forward slash Mitchell R. Tucker, Instagram at Mitchell R. Tucker. And I talked about the oath. I really encourage people peacefulsavageoath.com peacefulsavageoath.com you can go there there's a 1 minute video you click the video and you'll hear the oath um and it's it's mainly audio with just captions subtitles listen to the oath and if you agree with it sign the oath there's an option there to sign it when they do you'll get a copy of the oath in your email with your signature on it and then you'll be put on the email list for when i release my book the peaceful savage which should be sometime in december That's awesome. Well, looking forward to that next book coming out. I'm sure it's going to be amazing. And where can people, where's the best place for people to go to get your current book? Is it your website or Amazon or somewhere else? Yeah. Amazon.com, Mentally Tough and Weak Society. Awesome. I'll make sure there are links to all that to make it easy for people. But Mitchell, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Ryan, thank you. It's been a pleasure here as well. Appreciate you. Guys, thanks so much for joining me on another episode of the Extraordinary Man Podcast. Here's the thing, you're never going to maximize your potential on your own. So I'm personally inviting you to come and join me in the private Extraordinary Man Facebook group so you can level up your business and your life. Just head over to Facebook and type Extraordinary Man into the search box and it will show up as the first result. Iron sharpens iron and this is the number one place for you to connect with me and other like-minded men who are on a mission to maximize their potential. My goal is to help you become the man God created you to be in all areas of your life. So come and join us in the Facebook group and upgrade your business and your life. I'll see you on the next episode.